Well, welcome everyone to Brabus Road Church. Uh, can I get one of the tech people to turn on this monitor down here? Uh, television here. Um, anyways, I uh, want to just welcome you to the church and let you know about a few announcements. I like to remind you again, if you're an environmentalist, we sacrifice trees. They screamed as we cut them so we could f- print this for you. So it's a big deal. Uh, so if you look at your bulletin, take it out and honor the sacrifice. Um, we have a few announcements I want to point out. The first one is that today we have youth class. And so if you have a teenager between the ages of 12 to 17, uh, bring them and come along yourself. And we're going to study ecclesiology, inductive study. And really, this youth class is a way to help uh, the young members of our church to understand best how to uh, navigate life in the local church. And so definitely uh, show up for that. That'll be at the ministry center from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm teaching it. It's exciting. I think it's really important. Secondly, we have a, a what, when we call talk about membership, we have a class called ownership class, and we do it once a year, and it's uh, a chance for us to describe what it means to be a part, a member, a, a, an active participant in this local church. And so this picture of ownership is something we're going to talk about, and that's going to go over three consecutive weeks on Thursdays starting September 5th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at the Ministry Center. So if uh, you want to be a part of that and you haven't, uh, you, you know, you're newer at the church, you've been to this church for less than a year, uh, then I would definitely recommend you trying to show up to that. So again, it's on the bulletin, September 5th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at the Ministry Center. All of the elders will be there. Uh, it's a great time to get to know everyone. And then finally, just to remind you, our children are going to be also learning about the Lord, and they're studying the book of Joshua, so make sure you ask them about what they learned and, uh, and, and talk to them about it, so it, it kind of helps them to get used to the idea that you care that they're learning stuff, so ask them about Joshua. In the meantime, if you need a Bible, go ahead and lift your hands in the air. We have Bibles available, and uh, they'll bring them down to you. We're going to be in the book of Exodus, and we're covering some, some real ground today, and so you'll definitely want to follow along. So if you need a Bible, put your hands in the air, and our Bible people will bring them down to you. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. And we're going to go all the way from chapter 15, verse 22, all the way to chapter 17, verse 7. So go ahead and find your way there. Stand with me. You can stand. You'll do it. It'll be great. We'll read this passage so we hear it, and then we'll jump into the sermon. This is the reading of God's holy and precious word, Exodus 15, starting with verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. 
In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some part of it uh, till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside to the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, the sixth, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the 10th part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, "'Give us water to drink.'" And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage in the wilderness, as we come to recognize your hand in educating your people about your provision and goodness. Help us to think about all of our complaints, all of the struggles, all of the things that we're dissatisfied about. I pray, Father, that we recognize your hand in our lives. We recognize your sovereign goodness, your personal control. I pray for every Christian in this room today that they would be blessed abundantly and encouraged. And I pray for every non-Christian today that they would put their faith in you or be miserable until they do. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a big passage, but there's a lot in it. But I want to start with a little perspective. Exodus is going to get crazy after the giving of the Ten Commandments. We're going to get into a lot of the ritual and stuff, but in the meantime, we have to understand where we are in the story. 
In the story of Exodus thus far, we've come through these great pictures of salvation. You know, God has delivered the, the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt in spectacular fashion. They literally walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And last week, we just talked about them celebrating how big of a deal it was. But to give you a little bit of perspective, if you go to Exodus 14, verse 11, I want to remind you a little bit about what's going on. In chapter 14, verse 11, Right before the Jews crossed over the Red Sea, we have to remember they had just gone through and lived through God miraculously doing you know, 10 different plagues in the land of Egypt to deliver them. Supernatural provision over and over again. And at this point, they're about to cross the Red Sea. And they've watched Moses. They've watched God work through Moses, miracle after miracle. But all of a sudden, when they could visibly see Pharaoh's army coming, they forgot all about all the things that God had just done. And notice what they did. In verse 11, they say, they say this. And they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt, you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? And again, this is a, a remark, a sarcastic remark. Egypt is full of, of, of grave sites. I mean, that's what the pyramids are, after all. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. How quickly they forgot God's goodness towards them. It's easy to look at this and see how silly it was for them to forget in such a fashion. Good thing we don't ever act like that, right? Let's take a quick look at a video. It's a great song. Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus 20. I want to show you where we're going with this. Exodus 20, and let's look at verse 20 briefly. We have a lot to say, but on one sense, it's somewhat simple. If you, we get to Exodus 20, this is going to be after God gives the, the law, the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. We're, we're coming into this moment. But before that, we, we're going to see all these things. Then after, we see this theme that's going to be running all the way through. So if, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, notice what Moses says to the people. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. I want you to think for a second what's happening for the nation of Israel right now. God has personally brought them through the plagues. He has personally brought them through the Red Sea. And if you think about it, we wondered before, why did God have them wander around until Pharaoh, you know, got them stuck between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army? And we see that God had a purpose in saving them. And we remember the liturgical elements of the Passover and the liturgical elements of remembering the Song of Moses and what has been accomplished by God. And we know now, if we're paying attention in Exodus, that God was specifically doing these things to paint a very particular you know, painting for us of justification by grace, of salvation, of God's work in salvation, of doing the impossible, of saving us by our faith, of saving us by Christ. And, and, and that, that's the picture we've seen. So then we get to the other side. I'm like, okay, great. And they live happily ever after. But that's not what happens at all. Once you come to Christ, you might realize that, wait, there's still more to the story. We don't just zoom right up to heaven. The, God, the same God that led them specifically in such dramatic fashion for such a particular purpose in saving them to cross the Red Sea and delivering them from Pharaoh is the same God who leads them into the wilderness where the water is bitter. The same God who purposefully leads them to a place where there's nothing to eat. He purposefully leads them to another place where there's no water to drink at all. And we have to ask ourselves, either God just doesn't know what's going on, and he's just like, I'm trying my hardest, but I don't know my directions very well, or something else is happening. And so I have a quote here that I thought was very helpful. Spurgeon said it this way, and, and he did a sermon about this sort of section earlier in his life, and he said, Israel gained by education. The Lord was not going to lead a mob of slaves into Can Canaan to go and behave like slaves there. Think about this for a moment. God's not going to take us as the, the people we are when we came to Christ and just let us go into heaven. We would all ruin it right now. If we got to go to heaven, how great it would be, and we would ruin the whole place with our jealousy, with our worldliness, with our struggles, with our worries, with our anxieties, with our anger. We would ruin heaven the way we are right now. And so in the same way, God wasn't going to bring these slaves from, from Egypt, just bring them into the promised land to act like slaves. Spurgeon goes on and says, they had to be tutored. The wilderness 
was the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. There they went to the university, and he taught and trained them, and they took their degree before they entered into the promised land. Our wilderness might look different, Christian, but make no mistake, we are enrolled in the same school. Welcome to the Wilderness University. That's the title of the sermon. Let's look and see what we have here. The main idea of the passage is relatively straightforward. Uh, if you look at the first section, chapter 15, 22 to 27, welcome to the Oxford of obedience. Chapter 16, welcome to the Cambridge of contentment. And then chapter 17, 1 to 7, welcome to the graduate school of grace. So let's jump into this and see what's going on. Chapter 15, verse 22, there's so much happening, but we've kind of covered the large picture here. It says, when then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, there's a reference here after this song. And it's really awesome that we finish this song of triumph and the very next verse links us to it with reminding us of the Red Sea. It's not just like weeks later or years later or down the road, it's immediately from victory. You could say it this way, then Moses made Israel set out from their great victory. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. Now we have to remind ourselves that, again, as Spurgeon was saying, that this is God's purposeful plan to bring them into the wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So then imagine for three days having no water. Now, in the past, uh, whenever I would, when I was rowing and then when I do jujitsu often, I have to make weight. And making weight is always a, a, a balancing of how much water you have in your system. And when I was in college and before all the rest of it, making weight was a totally different game because uh, you didn't have to weigh until the day before. So you had plenty of time to really dehydrate yourself to make weight. So you would be uh, rowing at a weight class way different than what you would be the next day. And the purpose of this is that if you dehydrated yourself so much, you could be so much heavier the next day. And so you would just go without water. You'd sweat off that water. I remember being in New Jersey and trying to make weight and running in a big uh, Arctic sweatsuit and it was 100 degrees out and I was in an Arctic sweatsuit and I was running to just sweat off, you know, eight more pounds. Now, if you've never been in that situation, I can tell you there's few things more miserable than being that dehydrated. The only thing you want is water. You just want water so bad and that's only for a certain period of time. Imagine three days in the wilderness. We came back from Israel. It's not pleasant in the wilderness. The wilderness doesn't mean uh, trees and forest. It means the desert. So you're in the desert for three days, no water. This is a life and death circumstance. And so you can imagine for the, the Jewish people, they came to the Red Sea. God provided for them in such spectacular fashion. And so they're constantly wondering what's next. There's a sense of entitlement, of a feeling like, well, I feel like I should have all the things I need. You know, they came out of Egypt rich with the gold from the Egyptians, but now there's no water. Verse 23, so when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitterness. Now, you got to kind of read in between the lines for a moment to understand what's happening. So you're in the desert for three days and there is no water and then you come to water. And so what do you do? Woohoo! You're celebrating when I got to have water after being dehydrated for that little bit, you had to constantly remember to sip the water. Otherwise you would vomit it out, which would be bad and you'd get more dehydrated. So you had to sip because you just wanted water. I just want to jump in a pool of drinkable water. Just drink it. You just want water. So here they see water. You can imagine their excitement and they get to the place and they go to drink the water and it's bitter. It's brackish. It's undrinkable. It doesn't work. Talk about a mirage. You ever had this in your life where it seems like God's provided a way. It seems like that promotion's going to come your way. It seems like that job's going to come your way. That person's going to notice you. That thing's going to happen. And it all works out and you get there and you just have the sense that God's working it out and you get there and it's like, nope, psych. That's not true at all. No way. It's not true. And you think, what went wrong? And you're absolutely disappointed. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, we can't blame them too much here. At first glance throughout this sermon, it seems like this is going to be a sermon about grumbling because it, we see them grumble against Moses in this passage. We see in the next passage in chapter 16, grumbling repeatedly against Moses and God. And in chapter 17, them grumbling and even accusing in a rebellious fashion against the Lord. And so we would say, well, this passage is going to teach us all about how to have the right perspective and not grumble. But I'm going to argue today that that's not the point of the passage. 
Because in the midst of Israel's terrible grumbling, God answers them again and again. Much akin to a child, a young, young child. When they cry for something, you're not mad at them for crying for that thing. You then meet their need. Now, as they grow up, crying for that thing becomes unacceptable, which is later down the line. But in the initial stages here, God's teaching them something and allowing them to get to a place where they feel vulnerable. The grumbling is the picture of this vulnerability. They say, what shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. Now, if you underline the word log here, the word really means tree. Moses, they showed Moses a tree, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now, I'm, I, I'm struggle here because often you'll get sort of liberal commentators from back in the day try to tell you about how certain bark might make the water sweet. This is just a bunch of baloney. Right? This is a miracle, a full-on miracle. Think about how many people came out of Egypt. Last week, we talked about someone someone in the realm of like possibly two million. A little bit of bark from a tree isn't going to save a water supply for two million people. This is pretty miraculous. God shows them a tree, throws in the water, it becomes sweet. There, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there, he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Now we understand what's going on. If you remember the very first plague that the Jews faced, that the, the Egyptians faced when they were dealing with God revealing himself to them was that he turned the Nile into blood. And it made it so that they couldn't get water to drink and they had to dig for water. And so God did that to remind them that he's the Lord. And so here he has with his own people, he's reminding them that just because you came out of Egypt, I'm gonna get Egypt out of you now. And I want you to know about the same lesson. And so he brings them there in a small fashion to teach him the very same thing that he was really displaying against the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Then it says in verse 27, they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. So between verses 26 and 27, we have the difference between no water and then an oasis. In the first place, God changes the water supply they have, makes it drinkable, and then they turn the corner and then there's a giant oasis in the next place they go to. And so that God purposefully brought him to that place. When they complained to God, where's the water? He could have said, just keep going down the road. We're going to get to Elam and it's going to be great. But he doesn't do that. He had provision for them along the way, totally set for them. But he stopped them and let them feel that moment of need. Why? Why was this so important? They were, why was it important that God made them unable to drink this water with its own bitterness? If you go back to Exodus chapter one, in the very beginning of the book, we are reminded that the bitterness of the water is a picture, I believe, of their own bitterness when they met the Lord. It says in the beginning of Exodus that after they were oppressed, it says the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, in verse 14, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. Their lives were already bitter at one point. And they thought, well, now it's going to be sweet. But God's reminding them that the the, the thing that saved them from the bitterness was him. But the question is, why is it so important that he does it this way? And that's, that's what baffled me. That's what caused me to really get stuck in this passage. Because again, it's not just that, hey, things are going hunky-dory, they complain, he fixes it. It's that he brings them to a place and almost causes their complaining. And then answers it with what? His answer isn't, hey, just see how cool I am. His answer is, I want to remind you that if you obey me properly and listen to all the things I say, notice again what he says, if you obey me properly and listen to all the things I say, then I won't bring on you any of these plagues. He's telling him like, this is what it looks like to be my people. Again, if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and if you do what's right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, then I won't put any of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Now, if you're familiar with the church, if you've been in church for any length of time in the New Testament and grace and understanding the law, you'll understand that this is a trap. Go with me to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26. This is sort of setting us up to the law that's coming. But Leviticus 26, same principle, I believe, is in play here. In Leviticus 26, 
God's going to talk about these blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. This is a a contractual agreement that God's making with them. He's saying, look, if you obey me, here's what you get. If you don't, here's what you get. In, In many respects, this is similar to what someone would say would be the prosperity gospel. Here's the secret to prosperity. The problem is it's also the secret to curses. He says in verse three, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I'll give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the great harvest. And, and he goes on. Verse 6, I'll give peace in the land. You'll lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I'll remove harmful beasts from the land. The sword shall not go through your land. He goes on further, down to verse 11. I'll make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and be, will be your God, and you shall be my people. And you say to yourself, well, that's great promises. If I trust and obey the Lord, then he's going to be with me. Now, this is something we don't want to miss because the second side of this in verse 14 is, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do my commandments but break my covenant, then I'll do this to you. I'll visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consume the eye and make the heartache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I'll set my face against you. You shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. And he goes on and on and on. And it's terrifying as you read the bad things that happen. Think about what's going on right now. God brings them out. They experienced his grace. And now he says, okay, welcome to the Oxford of obedience. This is what it looks like to obey me, and this is what you get. Here's the test. If you pass it, here's your blessings. If you fail it, here's your curses. And they're like, ah. The question I have to ask for you today is, why such a severe test? What's the purpose of the severity here? Go to Galatians chapter 3. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Notice the order. God doesn't say, I brought you to this place so that you're going to obey me. And then they stopped grumbling, so then God blessed them. That's not what happened in our passage. God doesn't say, I brought you to this place where it's bitter. Here's the rule I'm going to give you. I'm going to do these things for you if you act this way. And they're like, okay, we act this way. And he's like, okay, cool. Here's this log, and you can make the water better. That's not what happened. The order of what happened was he showed Moses, he blessed them, And he told them this standard. And you have to ask yourself, this seems weird. It seems like saying to your child that's whining, don't you whine and complain, but then give them what they want when they whine and complain. It seems almost that he's reinforcing. I mean, did God not read a good parenting book that you're not supposed to give the kid that's whining what they want? Otherwise, you reinforce that whining gives you what you want. Like I tell this to all my kids. Hamilton's my newest young child. And so he's learning it right now. Whenever he cries, whatever he cries for, he does not get. He's at the age now. So he cries for something, he doesn't get it. Whatever he wants, and he cries for it. Nope, you don't get it, because I want to teach him that. Man, God could really learn from me, it seems like, doesn't it? Unless he's doing something else. If we look in Galatians, notice what Paul says in Galatians. He says, verse 10 of chapter 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now keep in mind, we haven't come to the law yet, but we're, this is sort of a, a, a broad sort of precursor to the whole movement. When he says, whoever relies on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. In other words, this deal about blessing and cursing for obedience is essentially what the law is and what it's going to be about. And what Paul says is, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Do you feel that? God's going to bless you, Christian, if you diligently obey all that he has for you. You might go to a church that's a self-help topical message. Here's how you have a better relationship. Here's how you have a better job. Here's how you have some some success. And here's the tips. But what's the implication behind that is if you do these steps, you'll have success. And you don't have success because you didn't do these steps. You're sick because you didn't pray the right way. You're bummed out because you didn't do this right thing. But here's the secret formula to success. That is a burden and you are cursed because you will never follow the steps well enough. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, cursed be everyone. Think about this. You're going to be made bitter by the law. You're going to be made bitter by these things because you can't do it. He says in verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified. No one's declared righteous before God by the law. No one can keep it. 
for the righteous shall live by faith. Well, what does that mean? Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us, not only from Egypt, but from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. This reference to tree is important. I believe emphatically, at first I thought it was subtle, but I don't think it's subtle. I think it's important that we're drawn our attention to the, the notion that Moses finds a tree. And later Paul brings up this remark and says that everyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed so that Christ was hanged on a tree in our place so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. There's only one person who could ever pass those commandments, and he did. And he went to a tree. Now, some commentators say maybe the tree is a reference to the tree of life. Genesis 2.9, there's a tree of life in the garden that gave life to all these things. In Revelation, there's a tree that's going to, you know, heal the nations. And maybe that's what this is alluding to, is that God's going to provide a way. But I think he's alluding to this tree, the tree that changes the curse into a blessing. Don't we, don't we do that? Don't we celebrate the cross? We tattoo it. We wear, ne- wear necklaces. We wear shirts. It's a sign of blessing in our lives. We look to the cross for hope, not for curse. Why? Because God made what was a curse a blessing. He made what was bitter sweet. And the whole dilemma, the whole thing was to get us to see this in our view. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. And I, and, I, and I say this with confidence, having gone through the other sections in Exodus that showed us that God was setting up when the Passover and setting up in the Red Sea and setting up in the plagues, these very, very particular, giant, looming, neon signs that point to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment. And so too, when it comes to our sanctification and the way we walk with Christ, God has set forward our provision in Christ Jesus. If we look at... Um, Hebrews 5, look at verse 7. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus was, lived the perfect life that we all are supposed to live, and God listened to him because he earned it in his perfection as a man. He truly was perfect. It is his perfection, it is his obedience that gives us so much hope. Look, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Why? Why did he do that? And being made perfect and complete, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He made what was bittersweet. However, it says obey, and that's a tricky word for Christians that understand grace because we obey, but then we're like, but what if it's not perfect? So now I have to obey him, and then I get to have his obedience? What I don't understand. This is really confusing, Matt. What's going on? What is this obedience that gives us eternal salvation? Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. As I mentioned, the Oxford of obedience. John chapter 6. This is what it means to be enrolled. Jesus, in the midst of this wonderful speech we're going to learn more about, He comes to the other side of the sea after walking on water and all the people find him on the other side of the sea and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He'd just gotten done finished feeding 5,000 people miraculously. And then he says this. He says, Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. Let me say this again. Do not work for the food that perishes and then In parallel fashion, instead, what's the implication? Work for what? Work for the food that endures to eternal life. But I thought we're saved by faith, not works. What? For on him, God the Father set his seal. God's like, that's my son. Well, then they said to him, okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent all of the law, all of the pictures, all of the instructions show us our inadequacy and show us his perfection. And all of them cause us to do what? 
to put our faith in his obedience. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says that his job was to bring about the obedience of faith in the Gentiles. He ends his letter in Romans talking about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith, the idea that I'm going to believe in God. And we know that in Ephesians, he says that this work of obedience is a work that's wrought by God in us, having regenerated us in his work. This is a beautiful picture of what God does on our behalf. But go to 1 Peter chapter 3 for a moment. What's amazing about all of this is the setup. I I just think it's so uh, subtle at first, but the story arc is important. We say, well, that's pretty cool for them. But what about us? What does Peter write? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's brought us to the Red Sea. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Not here yet. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power right now, right now are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you get this? That we're not there yet. In the meantime, we're in the wilderness. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. If by various trials, he might mean that you've been made to be bitter in such fashions, Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than the gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me say what is really going on here that's profound. When God says he's testing them, God's not like, I want to see what's going to happen. Let me do this and see where you're at. We've been talking over and over again about God's sovereignty. God knows the outcome of these tests. The purpose of this testing is not so that he can find out the quality of your true obedience. He already knows that. It's so that you can find out the quality of your true obedience. Christian, the trials in your life are meant to encourage you about the God who provides and who is in you because you act differently because of what he's done. They're to prove to you his provision. To prove to you the what? The value of the true obedience of Jesus Christ in your life, whereas your life is a byproduct of that. As the trial comes, God is proving to you the true nature of your faith. It's a profound idea, and that is the first picture we see, but it goes on. The next passage, it gets a little more crazy, and we hear about the manna. In chapter 16, they set out from Elam. This is the paradise for a moment they were in. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. The word sin here is not talking about sin. It's just a play on the word Sinai. It's a grammatical thing. It's not about sin. It's not like, oh, it's the wilderness of disobeying God. That's not what it means. It's the wilderness of sin is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So these trials are coming one after another. Verse two, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full for you brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now I might tell you that if your job was to remind yourself not to grumble, you can notice how silly it looked. At first glance, when they grumbled about the bitter water, they had sort of forgotten about God's provision in the past. They recognized that they were somehow entitled to this water all the way through, and they didn't have their expectation met, so they complained. In the second portion, their complaint is misremembering the past. They said that they had meat pots in Egypt. Well, it doesn't mean they ate from it. They were slaves in Egypt. They're like, remember how great it was when we were slaves? We had all these meals and we ate our bread to the full. They particularly did not eat their bread to the full. They're misremembering the past. Maybe you've done this. I remember when I was young and free and I went out and hung out with all my friends. Do you remember when you were in debt and had no money and couldn't buy gas? Oh, I just remember when we didn't have any cares in the world, you also didn't have anything. God, just take away the stress so I could finally be happy. I'm like, didn't you want that stress? So then the Lord says to Moses, behold, and this is, again, please don't miss this because this is where I think that the the passage is is moving. God doesn't say, stop your complaining. Earlier, they complained, and what does he do? Here's the tree, here's the water. He answers it. Here they're complaining, what does he do? We see how ridiculous their complaining is, and what does he do? 
He says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven. That is not how we act. This is not about stopping the complaint. Notice, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So here's the second time we get this reference to God testing them, teaching them. They are in a university now, in a different university. They are in the, uh, I didn't tell you yet, the Cambridge of contentment. They need to learn to be content with what he gives them. He says, I want to test them whether they'll walk in my law or not. Now notice he hasn't given his law yet. This reference to laws is the Torah. It, it, it means instruction. And so this would be essentially the, the akin to him saying, are they walking in my word or instruction or not? On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That saying is an insult. They should know that by now. They walked through water with fish, like they walked through dry land. They just sang a big song about it, how great the Lord is, how magnificent he is, how wonderful he is, how much victory he gives. And now when he says, I want to remind you how great he is, there's a reference to the fact that they forgot. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? So Moses is complaining to them that they're complaining. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. What Moses is saying is, you're grumbling, you shouldn't grumble, but nevertheless, God's going to bless you. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he's heard your grumbling. So Moses really wants them to know this. And this, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, the desert here, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, now I don't know in verse 11 if this was an audible voice that everyone heard or if just Moses heard it. I don't know or what that means. But let's pretend that all of them heard it. Here's a big cloud and, you, and then you hear God's voice. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them. So maybe he's just saying it to Moses or maybe they're hearing him say it. At twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So there's a reference here to the insult of our grumbling. I don't want you to miss this. There's a sense that we all know this. And maybe you felt this way. When you're complaining about a circumstance, you know that you have the wrong perspective. You know that you shouldn't be upset by it. You can't help yourself. Nevertheless, you go to him with that complaint. And he, and he answers you. And he answers you. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. So all of a sudden, they didn't have any meat, and God brings it to the like, doorstep. This is better than Uber Eats. All right? Quail just is in there. It's like, imagine in our current days, like, I'm so hungry, I could have something. And like, pizza just drops down in front of me. Oh, I'll eat this. That's what's going on. They're having meat, steak, awesome. Quail, not steak, whatever. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. When did it come? It came in the night. When did they find it? In the morning. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Guys, they didn't have like pastries the way we have it today. This was tasty. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? The word what is it is what the word manna is. So the name manna from heaven is what is it? What is it? What's that thing for, that we're eating? For they did not know what it was. And Moses told them, he says, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now, again, some commentators try to say that a tree can make water not bitter and they, they miss the miracle. And in this case, some commentators say, oh, there's a special worm that, that secretes this thing that maybe is sweet. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That might really explain this. Not. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. That's a lot. And you shall each take an omer. By the way, no one knows what, how much an omer is. Is it a gallon? Is it a liter? And they're like, oh, well, it's, if you look at verse 36, an omer is the tenth part of an ephah. So, uh, you know, an ephah, they say, might be three-fifths three of a bushel or 22 liters. I don't know how much that is. That's a lot of flaky frosting to gather, okay? And so it takes an omer according to the number of persons that you have in your tent. And so they do it daily. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, 
There you go. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever other gathered little had no lack. What the point here is that God is providing for each person, particularly and individually. There's a miraculous provision here. That everyone had what they needed. If you needed more, you got it. If you needed less, you got it. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Why no leftovers? Listen, we're not used to this. What do we pray when they said, Lord, teach us to pray? What was the thing we pray? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Do you pray that, Christian? I don't pray that. You probably have food in your refrigerator right now. You don't need God to give you daily bread. You can go to Costco. What is this about? This is the blessing of recognizing his provision. There's only enough for each day. Don't leave any of it left over, verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. They went to Costco, some part of it, till they left till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. Okay, that might, maybe the worm guy's right, right? And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. So far, maybe it's a, a, a natural phenomenon. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Again, that seems pretty miraculous. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow's a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. God has not commanded them to have a Sabbath yet. He's teaching them about the law before he gives them the law. Now, why would, what, ha, what does this have in common? This daily provision and rest has in common this idea of being content in what God provides, being content in where you're at, resting upon his provision. And so he wants to teach them this. He wants them to rest because it's a solemn rest. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. Well, wait, I thought the worms were gonna come in. So they laid it aside till morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Every single week, God provided a miraculous illustration of his special provision for them that when they rested, they could rely upon him. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you'll not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there shall be none. There will be none. We will talk more about Sabbath later, but I will say this. The principle of trusting God enough to rest is important. Are you so busy stocking and stockpiling your canned goods that you forget that it's all fake? God is the one who provides for you, not your 401k, not your canned goods, not these things. And resting in him is a reminder of that. On the seventh day, they, people didn't listen to this. They, verse 27, they went out and gathered and they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? There's a recognition that they were disobedient. And here's the thing I want you to keep in mind. In their disobedience, God still blesses them. There's a point here. See, he says in verse 29, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, which means seventh. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Let me give you a broad principle here. Maybe you're like, hey, I want to be at church on Sunday, but I, I have to work. I'm like, find a way to be at church on Sunday. Oh, I might lose a shift. Lose the shift. God will take care of you. Oh, I'm, I meet someone and we're dating and it's just so much more economical to live together before we're married. Don't do it. Trust the Lord and his provision. He will provide what you need and take care of you. Hey, I feel like kids are, the Bible says kids are a blessing, but I'm not sure what should, what should happen, what's going to go on. Trust in the Lord. He will provide for you. He will provide what you need, Christian. This isn't the prosperity gospel. This is the, the provision gospel. God's ability to take care of you is constant. Now it says here in verse 31, it goes on to describe, it says, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed. No idea what that is. White, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. That sounds yummy. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Notice this reference to commandments again. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now here's another miracle. Not only does he bring this, but he's going to sustain this manna when they keep it without ever worms coming for generations. God is purposefully proving something to them. Verse 33, and Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. So as the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. God's provision of this where it, did never, it never spoiled is also a picture of his provision. 
The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Listen, guys, when we get to heaven, we won't need to pray for our daily bread because it'll be in front of us. Our faith will be sight and our hope will be reality. But right now, right now we're not there. And so we're eating the manna. What do you mean? What, what, what is this all about, Matt? I don't understand what it, what's happening. What, what's the, the storyline here? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because when he says, I'm going to test you to know what's going on, Deuteronomy 8 is something, it's kind of quoting this. Verse 1. God wants them to remember them, and he says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you'd keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God might not provide for you the way you think, but he will provide for you. The hardest lesson I faced as a brand new Christian that knew he wanted to be a pastor was when I realized, and I'm reading through the Bible and I was learning about trusting the Lord and I felt convicted that I needed to give. And I remember this story. There's a, we were, we were living in Boston and uh, I didn't have any money. I was living on credit cards. I was training and rowing and, and Becky and I were uh, going to get married and move back here. I was going to go to seminary and I knew I wanted to be a pastor and I knew I needed to like rely on the Lord in a way that maybe I wasn't yet. And I remember sitting down and, uh, just saw a need and there was a person at the church that needed something. And so I took my money and I gave it to the person at church just thinking that they needed it and it was helpful and whatever. And that day later, I didn't have any money. I was like, okay, I'll use my credit card. So in the meantime, we're at 7-Eleven and my, my buddy Mark was going in and, and Rebecca was in the 7-Eleven getting stuff because uh, they had money. I didn't have any money at the moment. So I'm outside just talking to a homeless guy and we just chatted. I was giving him the gospel. And it was a neat moment, and he was really thankful for the fellowship. And so he gave me this grody plastic bag with a decrepit orange in it and some McDonald's dollars in it and a, a few, like, bits of change. This was what he had. Uh, the McDonald's dollars, you know, if you didn't want to give the homeless person money because you didn't want to spend it on, you know, drugs or alcohol, you might give them McDonald's dollars. They used to do that when they did that. And so he had this little plastic baggie with this gross orange and the, these like McDonald's dollars and some change. And I'm like, I can't take that. I can't take this. Please take it. And Merry Christmas. I'm like, okay. So whatever. I, I put the money in and I threw the orange away. I didn't eat it. It was gross. <laughs> Later that night, my wife and I, we, we'd got, we'd been out the whole day and we were driving back and I was going to take her home and I was going through this area. And Boston's not always the best place, always one-way streets. And we stop at this McDonald's in the ghetto. And we go in and we're waiting in line and whatever. We get up there. And uh, I order, whatever I order, I forget. It was awesome. And they tell me the price. And I don't remember exactly the price, but it was like, I don't know, eight fifty two, some price, right? And I go, okay, great. And I hand them my credit card because that's how I was living. And they're like, oh, we don't take credit card right now. Our, our machine's down. And there's a line of angry thugs behind me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh. And I just was like, oh, man. I put my hand in my pocket and pulled out that plastic bag with McDonald's dollars. And I'm like, and it was exactly the amount that I needed. And she's like, thank you very much. And I went back with my tray, and back here sitting down, I went back, and I just started crying. Because God used a homeless man to feed me in that moment. God might not do it the way you think, but he wants us to know he's going to take care of us, and he's going to humble us till we know it. He wants them that man does not live by bread alone, but why such a hard test that they can't pass? Because we always are self-sufficient. We always go on and gather more manna and go to the Costco in our lives and build up the things that give us security. We always do it. So does that mean we can't feel safe? Right? I mean, he says, be careful to do all that I command you. Welcome to the Cambridge of Contentment. This is a terrifying test. If you don't do it, he's not going to bless you in these ways. They said their clothing didn't wear out all this stuff. But look at verse 11. He says, take care lest you forget and don't keep his commandments. If you forget, you're going to be in big trouble, in other words. Why such a crazy test? Well, that quote from Deuteronomy 3, you know, that we might learn, why be humble, the whole purpose, the whole lesson that we're reading about with the manna was what? To teach us that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We don't live by bread alone. Go to Matthew chapter 4. 
Look with me at verse 1. When Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, we know in Luke's gospel, this is after he was baptized, after we know who he is in this gospel, too, after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? Because we're in the wilderness. So here's Jesus, the perfect man, being tempted in the wilderness the same way we're tempted. And he's tempted by the devil. It says, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, some of you went with us to Israel and you remember, it is not an easy place to be. 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. I mean, this is, he's on the bridge of death. He's on the verge of death. And here's the crazy part. When you're out there and you look, there's ro- it's like a desert land and there's rocks everywhere and the rocks all look like little loaves of bread already. And if you have power to do it, this isn't Jesus starving because he can't get food. At any moment, he can bring bread and turn it all into bread and have a feast, but he doesn't do it. And when you understand how significant his lack was and how grave his temptation was, just one click of his fingers, one thought, and it's bread and he's fed. So Satan tempts him and he says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answers, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes from that Deuteronomy passage, which is all about what? The manna. Every temptation that you face is in this place. Only one person could pass this test and he does. In Hebrews 12, we look to him who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame and went to the cross. Jesus is the one with perfect contentment. He was perfectly content in the Lord of God, even as he was on the brink of death. We're to look to the one who's perfectly content. Go to John chapter six. There's more though. Same story we were reading earlier where Jesus, they were talking about doing the works of God in verse 30. After he says this, he says to them, they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Notice he just, they just watched Jesus give them and multiply loaves and fish for more than 5,000 people. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Then Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Look, Look at verse 38. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He, again, is perfectly content in the will of God and the word of God. If you go down a little bit further, verse 43, Jesus answers them, do not grumble among yourselves. They, they grumbled about what he's saying. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. The purpose of the command was to draw us to the bread who perfectly fulfills those commands, the one that does it. He is the one. He is your daily bread. Do you believe in him? Go to Philippians chapter four. Look at verse eight. What does Paul say? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, he writes us from prison or verse 10 rather. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you revived your concern for me for you were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be, in, to be content. He was in prison. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why is this? God knows the quality of, of true contentment. He's not testing you to find out if you have it. He's testing you so that you can find out that you have it. That's the purpose of this this Cambridge of contentment here. Go back to our passage, and until we know that, we're going to be continually tested. Go to chapter 17 of our passage. It's the last one. The reason this all goes together is all the complaints are together. After all this, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So previously we see God testing them, God testing them. But this last one, they test him. They wanted to know 
if you look at the verse seven at the end, is the Lord among us or not? God, do you even love me? That's what they're asking. God, do you even love me? Don't blame them yet because haven't you felt like that sometimes? God, I can't believe this is happening to me. Do you even love me? Heaven forbid God took us seriously. But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're blaming God in their hunger. Don't focus on how to not grumble. Focus on what God does. So Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do with the people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord, so now Moses is complaining. And the Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people, take in with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Now look very carefully next section. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Briefly, go with me quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 16, what does he say in Deuteronomy? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Don't do that. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and statutes which he commanded you. Why? Verse 18, that it may go well with you. So are you telling me that we never are supposed to doubt and we're supposed to live this way, that the lesson here, because if the lesson is simply, hey, here's some grumbling, don't grumble and it's gonna go well with you. There's no need for a cross. There's no need for a savior. All we need is self-help and improvement. Just don't grumble anymore. It's gonna go well with you. Why does he do this? Welcome to the graduate school of grace. Why such a hard test? Go to Hebrews 4. Look, if you will, at verse 13. 14, rather, sorry. So since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Don't hold fast your confession of faith because you're so obedient, but do it because we have a great high priest who is. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The point is that Jesus knows how we feel. He knows how we feel forsaken. He knows how we feel abandoned. He knows that we feel this way. And he's like, that's why I came and I felt the same way, but I didn't sin. So our hope isn't in our perfect obedience. It's all a giant neon sign to point to him who is without sin. So then we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and to, and to find grace and help in time of need. There's only one that could ever pass this test and he sits on the throne of grace. Go to 1 Corinthians 10. Flip with me here, it's worth it. 1 Corinthians 10, verse one. Listen to what Paul talks about in idolatry. He's talking about them coming out, warning them, and he says this in verse four. All drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul's making a giant interpretation from this passage and says that the rock was Christ. The rock that followed along, that was with them. When, Mo when Moses was commanded to go strike the rock, he says, the rock was Christ. He says, I'll come, go to this rock at Horeb and stand upon the rock, and I will be there. I will be on the rock and strike it. And when you strike it, what happens? Go to John chapter 19. I love this picture. It's just a physical picture of the, what we're watching with that rock. Verse 34 of chapter 19, it says, when Jesus on his side on, the, on the, the cross, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Strike the rock and water will come out. Enough water to satisfy two million people. Stay in John, go to chapter four. Look at verse 13. Why is this so important? Jesus is with the woman at a well and he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. The Jews that drank that water were thirsty again. But all of it, all of it served to point to him. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Strike the rock. And they're complaining, hey, don't complain, you get better. And he's like, no, no, God's answer is, no, 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 strike the rock. He'll be the one. And water will come from him. And Jesus comes one day later and refers to these things and says, I come and give you these things. Go to chapter 7 and listen to what he says. Chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, on the great day, Jesus stood up. So this is after they've just eaten all this bread. And what happens in the wilderness? They just come out having bread from heaven. Here's Jesus. They're celebrating this, this feast. And they're all eating this bread, this festival of lights. And then it says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let me remind you, Christian, that God knows the quality of true eternal life. He knows what it looks like. He's not testing you to see what it looks like. He's testing you so that you know what it looks like in your life. Let's take a quick look at a video. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for bringing us to the Wilderness University. I would love to just have gone right to heaven, but I'm thankful that you didn't stop with me as a, a slave, but you're teaching me to be yours. I pray, Father, that all of us today would recognize that when life is bitter, you gave us a provision. Father, that we would recognize that all of the things that we hunger for, all the things that we need, you've given us. Father, that when we find ourselves thirsty, when we find ourselves accusing you, when we find ourselves feeling utterly forsaken, you've given us the source of living water and it will flow out of ourselves. Father, these tests are not fun, but thank you for showing us the true, genuine value of our faith, which is more precious than gold. Thank you, God, for this gift of faith. Thank you for nurturing it in our lives, for guarding it in our hearts. I ask, Father, that as we face the trials, as we go through the things that we don't grumble for no purpose, but that we would look to your provision, that we would look to Christ, that we would live the sanctified Christian life absolutely by grace through faith, Father. I ask that you would strengthen us as believers today as we do these things, and I ask for those that don't know you today that have seen a picture of the gospel for the first time possibly, that, or maybe after the hundredth time, but they would today repent. They would recognize their need for a Savior, their inability to keep those commandments. They will never do enough to be blessed. They only have cursing awaiting them. But Father, the whole point was to point to the neon sign, which is Christ, the true provision. I pray, Father, that they would drink, that they would eat, they'd be saved. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.